Welcome to our 156th podcast, and the 126th is a city on a hill church. Last week, Pastor Mike exhorted us to let not our hearts be troubled, a message we certainly needed to hear. This week, as we've all been hunkered down trying to avoid the silent and invisible, Pastor Mike gives us another timely and needed exhortation, strength to endure. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. I began a series last Wednesday night, sort of interrupted uh, the teaching here through the book of Isaiah, uh, but this will be the second teaching in the series, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, and I've entitled this message tonight, Strength to Endure, Strength to Endure. And if you would like to open up your Bibles, we're going to start in James chapter 5, verse 7, and I'll read James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. This will be uh, the passage that we will use as a springboard into the message tonight. Strength to endure, second part of the, me- of the series, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. James chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. According to the word of God, there is actually tremendous value to our suffering as Christian people. If we maintain a humble and a teachable and a patient perspective as we face our trials, uh, the Lord will use our trials in a great way in our lives and use our trials to minister through us to others. The trials that we experience, they purge us, they refine us, and they purify us. Even as the refiner's fire purifies the gold or the silver. When we experience losses in our lives, loss of our health due to sickness and disease, uh, loss uh, of our loved ones to death, loss of our finances or the loss of our jobs or material possessions, loss even of our security and our stability, we at that time are forced to run to God in a very real way. The trials also expose the weakness of our flesh to us, often that which we are blinded to. Others might see it, but we don't see it in ourselves. When we are tried and we face adversity, Often we come face to face with our own frailties, with our own weaknesses of our flesh. Uh, And trials will also expose the strength of our faith in God. When we suffer losses in this life, whether they be physical losses, uh, material losses, uh, losses of temporal attachments, we realize at that time that only eternal things will last forever. Everything else is passing away. All the other things of this world are passing away, except for the eternal things, which endure forever. And when we face adversity and trials, that's when that becomes very real to us personally. You know, if you think about it, everything that is alive will eventually die, whether it be a beautiful flower or a beautiful house plant or a tree, or a favorite pet, or even a loved one, ultimately even our own lives. 
everything that is alive will one day die because we are under a curse. And the curse that came upon the earth when man sinned is that basically uh, death is the result of sin. And because all have sinned, all will die. And so it's at times uh, where we experience loss. It's at times where we experience suffering and we experience adversity and trials that we are faced with that reality, that the things of this world are temporary. The things of this world are passing away. And the one who does the will of God will endure forever. Death is not the end of the story, of course, for the believer. We know that uh, death is just a door, really, that we pass through to enter into the real life, into the true world uh, of eternity with God. Uh, but losses often drive us to our knees. And if we are God's people, we will seek to find the comfort of the Lord at the times where we are suffering the most. And that's where the Lord, as we run to him, he will take us into his arms. He will provide comfort for us in our afflictions, and he will give us the solace uh, that we can't find anywhere else in this world. Times of trial and adversity test our faith, or another word for test would be prove our faith or the lack thereof. Uh, the refiner's fire purges the dross and the impurities out of the gold or the silver. And so, too, for the Christian, the times that we are going through the fires of adversity, the Lord wants to use those trials to purge the world, the flesh, and even the devil out of our lives as his people, uh, because we get polluted as we go through this world. This world is fallen. It's under the power of the devil. And everything under this uh, world is, is under a curse, as we know. Uh, the Lord wants to free us from the attachments of the things of this world. And oftentimes he uses trials and he uses adversity to accomplish this in our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we do experience trials. It's something that Jesus uh, promised in this world. You will have tribulation. He said, in me, you will have peace. Uh, John 16, 33. Uh, but in this world, you will have tribulations. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Uh, Peter or uh, Paul told us, uh, told Timothy uh, that all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so there, there are going to be difficulties in this life, even for the Christian. And the Christian who uh, believes that somehow his Christianity or her Christianity will make you immune from difficulty, immune from trials, immune from losses and suffering, really, that's an immature uh, Christian or, or an immature theology, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that we are exempt from adversity as Christians. To the contrary, we will suffer to some degree more than others because we are those of Christ and because we carry uh, his name. And the God of this world uh, hates Jesus and the God of this world hates Jesus' followers like you and me. And so we should not be surprised when we face various trials in our lives. Again, in uh, James 5.10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. So you have him talking about suffering, patience, and endurance. He says, we count them blessed to endure through suffering because you become patient. He says, you have heard of the perseverance or the patience of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We know the story of Job, and we'll look at that uh, here in just a few minutes, uh, the, the losses that Job suffered. But, of course, 
uh, Job has become famous. He's become famous throughout all the world and all of history. Uh, the patience of Job. Why was Job patient? Because he endured through difficulty. He suffered greatly, but he never gave up hope. He never gave up his faith in God and he never charged God foolishly. In other words, he never blamed God when he suffered tremendous loss. And at the end of Job's life, God blessed him more than at the beginning and and basically gave him double uh, everything that he had lost. He got back double. Um, Some people say, well, what about his kids? He lost 10 children uh, and he only got 10 children back at the end. It says God gave him 10 more children uh, after he had lost the first 10. And so he didn't get double his children. But from God's standpoint, he did get double the children because his first 10 children went to be with the Lord. And so uh, Job would get to be with those 10 children when he went to be with the Lord and then the other 10 children when he went to be with the Lord. So indeed, uh, God did double even Job's losses of his children. He ended up with 20 children uh, instead of 10 in heaven for all eternity. Now, James chapter one, James says this in verse two. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Or again, that word can be translated endurance or perseverance, patience, endurance, perseverance. Really, the only way to get patience, endurance or true perseverance is by suffering and enduring through the pain and the trial to get to the other side. He says, but let patience have its perfect work. Verse four, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. And so trials are good for us as much as we hate trials. We hate uncertainty. We want everything to be exactly as we plan it to be. But that's just not life. It's not reality. It's not realistic to think that everything is always going to go as planned. And uh, eventually you live long enough in this life and you will suffer the loss of everything you love. I mean, most of us remember our favorite pets when we were kids and you know, my pet dog was Sparky and, you know, you just think when you're a kid, your dog dies and you, you bear him. Even if your dog lives to be 12, 13, 14 years old, you're, you're to some degree inconsolable as a child when you lose your, your pet uh, as a kid. Uh, but, but, you know, later on in life, you get another dog and then you forget about Sparky and you get another dog that, you know, and then if that dog lives long enough and you live long enough, that dog will, will die. You outlive that dog and you'll grieve and, you know, and, and, and so we, we go through life experiencing losses. The losses of everything that we love will eventually leave us. Uh, if you live long enough, it's almost a curse for the people in Japan that live to be 115 years old. You see them all shriveled up and they have a picture of them. The oldest person alive just died in Japan, 115, 116 years old. And when you read about it, it's a very sad thing. They're lonely. They're in a nursing home. All of their children are dead. All of their grandchildren are dead. They don't really know their great-grandchildren. They don't know anybody. All their friends are dead. Their parents are dead. Their siblings are dead. So to some degree, living a long time is almost a curse, really, especially for the Christian. Uh, It's better to go to be with the Lord for us than to hang around on a, on a ventilator or oxygen machine in a hospital bed somewhere until you're 120. You live long enough and, and everybody that you love uh, will eventually leave you and die. And, and so we, we, we just have to understand that's part of what the Bible calls uh, the curse that we're under. You know, Adam and, in, Adam and Eve brought sin into this world because they disobeyed God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And sin now uh, has spread to all men. And as a result, death has spread to all men and women and everything that is alive. So we have to we have to face these things. We have to deal with these things. We have to endure these uh, losses and these adversities and these trials that we face. And if we uh, endure them in the Lord, if we run to the Lord, then he strengthens us during the times of our loss and the times of our uh, adversity. 
the fiery trials, as the Bible says, that we face. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2, I'll read this to you. Malachi says this, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who could stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And so this is actually speaking of Jesus, because if you read in verse one, behold, I send my messenger who prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom delight. This is speaking of Jesus. And he says that uh, who can endure the day of his coming? Who could stand before him, Jesus, when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. He will purify his own, his own people. The Levites were the priests. And so uh, Jesus, you know, he's got... Uh, eyes as a flame of fire, Revelation tells us, and uh, feet as burnished bronze. And he's, you know, white, so white and bright that you can't even look at him because you'd be blinded to look at him. According to the book of Revelation, chapter one, as Jesus revealed himself to John in his glorified state, he's holy, he's righteous. And, and part of this is he wants to purge out of us the sins of our flesh. He wants to refine us. He wants to purify us. He wants to wash us white as snow. And that's what he does. God refines his people. And oftentimes it's through the fires of adversity that we are refined in our faith. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says this. He says, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you should keep or shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to Fear him. And so God says here that he led his people, Israel, 40 years in the wilderness to humble them and to test them to know what was in their hearts. Now, it's interesting that, you know, God says so so that what would be in your heart would be known to know what was in your heart. We know that God already knew what was in their heart, their grumblings, their murmurings, their complaining about the manna and complaining about Moses and complaining about Aaron and complaining about being in the desert for 40 years, even though God was providing everything that they needed. Uh, when, when God says, I humbled you, I tested you to know what was in your heart. It wasn't that God didn't know what was in their hearts. God knew all along what was in their hearts, their bitterness, their wanting to go back to Egypt their rebellion against uh, Moses's authority and God's authority over them in that theocratic form of government that God was establishing with them. So so God was actually revealing to themselves what was in their hearts, to know what was in your heart. And so often when we go through trials and we go through testings and we are humbled by the Lord, we then see what's in our own hearts. And oftentimes it's very ugly, isn't it? When we start to suffer losses, when things don't go our way and we get all bent out of shape and, you know, we're no longer saying praise the Lord or, you know, uh, trust in God. You know, we're grumbling and complaining and griping about everything that's happening to us. The Lord is revealing. It's like holding a mirror up and saying, you know, you thought you were so strong, but you're not as strong as you think you are. You thought that your faith was so strong 
until you hit this trial, you suffered these losses, and then you fell apart. See, God knows how weak we really are. It's, it's just kind of a delusion. It's a self-deception that we think we're stronger than we really are. And sometimes God has to strip everything away from us to one degree or another to expose to ourselves the weakness of our faith. And that's how our faith becomes stronger. Because then we're dealing with reality and we're saying, you know what, Lord, I have no strength. My strength comes from you. I have no power. My power only comes from you. I have no hope in my circumstances. My hope is only in the Lord. I have nothing else and no one else to hope in. Everything else has been taken away from me, but I still stand upon the word of God and the promises of God. And that is how the Lord builds godly character, strength and endurance with his people. When we suffer the loss of things we love, the enemy wants us to blame God and to get angry at God. And you see this oftentimes with young people. They'll uh, lose something. Maybe one of their parents dies when they're a teenager or their parents get, get a divorce when they're a teenager or, uh, you know, they break their leg uh, playing high school football and they don't get to go play college ball on the scholarship or what have you. Uh, and, and there's a loss that is suffered and oftentimes people get angry at God. They get angry at God. They blame God for the bad things that happen to them. And uh, God's not the one to blame. You see, the devil wants us to blame God. The enemy wants us to be angry at God, even though it's the enemy who is the murderer and the liar from the beginning. It's the enemy who came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have life more abundantly. But the devil is the one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so God gets a bad rap. God gets blamed for the wickedness that the enemy brings into this world. The devil is the uh, a liar and he's, he's the, the author of all lies, the Bible says. He's a murderer from the beginning, and God is not. God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. God is just. God cannot do evil. And so if evil happens to us, and we suffer as a result of evil people, or evil things, or evil sicknesses and diseases, or what have you, God is not to blame. God is good, and God is love. That's his character. That's his nature. And yet the enemy comes... He does these evil things to us or gets people to do evil things to one another. And then he wants us to get angry and blame God for it. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable here and then explains the parable for us about the the field. Matthew chapter 13, the, the tares and the wheat. Verse 24, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, do you want us to go then and gather them up? And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is really probably the greatest definition of where evil comes from in the Bible in a very simplified form. People say, where did evil come from? If God's good, how is there evil in the world? One of the great philosophical questions that a lot of people get hung up on. If God's good and he's all powerful, he's omnipotent, then how does evil exist? And, and, And then they dismiss the whole concept of God because they can't understand evil. Well, Jesus tells us right here where evil comes from. He says, it's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The man who sowed good seed in his field is God in this parable. 
The field is the world. The seed is the seed that God plants, the word of God. Uh, But while men slept, his enemy came. That's the devil. And sowed tares or bad seed among the wheat. And then the tares sprouted and produced a crop uh, alongside the grain. And they came to him. The servants came to the owner and said, did you not sow good seed? In other words, if you're a good master, if you're a good God, where did the evil come from? Where did the bad seed come from? And he said, an enemy has done this. When you suffer loss, when you experience death, when you experience disease, it's very simple. The enemy has done this. The enemy has done this. God is not responsible for the evil that happens to us in our lives. How do we know that that's the explanation? Because Jesus tell us, tells us so in verse 36 of Matthew 13. Jesus explains the parable. He says this, as his disciples came to him and said, explain the parable of the tares of the field to us. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 37 of Matthew 13, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, God. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. And so whenever we experience evil, God is not to blame for the evil. It's either other people or it's the result of the, the fall of man and the curse that the whole earth is under. Um, or it's, it's the result of the devil, an attack from the devil himself. But God is not responsible for evil that we experience. As a matter of fact, God is good, God is love, and God will conquer evil in the end, ultimately. He'll redeem this whole earth. He's going to redeem uh, and, and restore. He's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to rule forever and ever in uh, heaven with righteousness and justice and peace. It's all going to be good in the end. Uh, but for now, we are, as it were, in enemy territory. We are living behind enemy lines and we are not of this world. We're just passing through this life to get to our real world, the real life the eternal life that is with Jesus Christ that we will experience in heaven. Again, Job was uh, mentioned in the book of James in James chapter 5. And I'd like to turn just for a moment to the book of Job, just to look at the first couple of chapters of Job. And Job is right before the book of Psalms in your Bible. If you want to turn to Job chapter 1, You know, even Job, who was a righteous man, a godly man, as we're going to see, he was pressured to blame God. No doubt it was a temptation when his wife came to him and said, curse God and die. You know, are you going to maintain your integrity, Job? His wife said this to him, curse God and die. Uh, No doubt he was being pressured to blame God for the evil that befell him. But he never did. He never blamed God. This is why Job is still uh, such a... um, Great role model for those who are suffering. He questioned God, but he never blamed God. He never charged God foolishly for the attacks of the devil in his life. In Job chapter one and verse one, we read this. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were several thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east and his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. Verse six, 
Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, of course, Job didn't know about this conversation that happened in heaven. And it's a very interesting scene that is revealed for us, a heavenly scene where even the demons had to come before God to give an account to him of what they were doing and what they were up to, including uh, Satan himself. And it was uh, God, the Lord, who brought up Job in the conversation. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So the Lord was boasting about Job because Job was a good man. He was a great man. He was a righteous man. And God had blessed him. God had blessed everything that he did. Uh, And Job really deserved the blessings, as it were. He was a righteous man. He was an upright man. He feared the Lord. He loved the Lord. He loved his family. He was a good man and, and God was bragging about him. God was boasting about him to the devil. And then the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren, begins to uh, basically say, yeah, well, you've you won't let me get to him. You put a hedge around him. You 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 protected Job. I can't get to him uh, because you put this hedge around him and his household. And, and besides, you blessed everything that he has. Of course, he serves you. Satan is saying, the accuser of the brethren, of course he loves you because of look how you blessed him. Anybody that had all these blessings would love you. But let me get to him. Take away your hedge of protection and let me take away all that he has. And then you'll really see what Job is made of, Satan says. And he'll curse you to your face. And God says, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So then we read the story continues in verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So you see Satan in action. You see the devil at work. This is what the devil did to Job. Now, God gave permission in this situation. We, we have the backstory. God gave permission. And really, the enemy can't uh, attack us unless he gets permission from the Lord. We're, his, we're God's people. We're protected by the Lord. But um, anything that the devil does to us must first pass through God's hands before the devil can get to us. He must pass through God's hands in order to get to us. And that's reassuring for us. But Job didn't know the backstory here. Uh, Job was serving the Lord. He loved his family. And then all of a sudden, it's just bam, 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 bam. Everything 
all of his wealth, all of his his herds and his cattle and his camels and his sheep. Uh, the enemy comes. Satan comes and brings war and, 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 and murder. Uh, it's interesting that fire, verse 16, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep. So this would have been some sort of a natural disaster. Fire from heaven. I don't know what that could have been. Asteroid or something. Fire from heaven. Came down and burned up all of his sheep. Does Satan have the power to do that? Apparently he does. Then a, a, a tornado, a great wind, either a tornado or a hurricane. Verse 19, suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners. Now, who brought the tornado? The devil did. How, how did that happen? I don't know, but that's what the Bible says. So often God gets blamed for tornadoes and God gets blamed for earthquakes and God gets blamed for hurricanes and God gets blamed for tidal waves and tsunamis. You remember, it's interesting when Jesus was in the boat and he rebuked the storm and the storm stopped because it was, you know, rocking the boat and they were afraid they were going to sink. And Jesus was sleeping and they woke him up and then Jesus came up and he rebuked the storm and he calmed the seas. Uh, In the original language, when when Jesus rebuked the storm, it's the same way that Jesus would rebuke a demon in someone that was demon possessed and tell the demon to come out of the person. It's the same words that were used. And so we, we don't quite understand how all this works, but the devil is the one who brought this great destruction, not God. The devil is the one who brought this great destruction upon Job and upon his family. Verse 20 says, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong or blame God. For all the evil that have beset him. What a great example for us. Naked I came from my mother's room. Naked I shall return there. You know, I didn't bring anything into this world, in other words, and I'm not going to take anything with me when I die. A rich man once died, very wealthy man, and uh, the news reporters were waiting to see how much he was worth, a very private, secretive individual. Nobody knew exactly how much he was worth, but he was worth a fortune. And uh, someone had come out, come out as they were reading the will when this rich man had died, and they were finally reading the will of the family. And one of the newspaper reporters asked someone who came out of the room where the will was read. And he says, well, he says, everyone wants to know, how much did he leave? And the man looked at him and said, he left everything. He left it all. You see, you can't take it with you. It doesn't matter how much money that you have in this world, how many things, how many possessions. We can't take it with us. Job lost everything, but he didn't blame God. Then in chapter two, we read this. If that wasn't enough, we read this again. Verse one, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and Satan struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, 
You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so Satan even brought disease upon this man of God and and smote him with some terrible disease. Boils on him that were running, that were oozing, that were itching, and he would have to scrape them with a broken piece of pottery because they itched so bad. And, uh, you know, the whole rest of the, the, the book of Job, you can read it and see kind of Job's agony, how much he was suffering and how he how he complained, how he questioned. But he never blamed God for what had beset him, what had befallen him. And Job passed the test. In the end, you get to the end of the book of Job, and basically God restores, heals Job, and then restores everything that Job had lost double because Job's endurance prevailed. He trusted the Lord through it all. Can Satan bring disease? He certainly can, according to this story. When Jesus was there on the cross, suffering on the cross of Calvary, he too questioned God. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So it is okay to question God because we don't know everything. A lot of times we don't understand why things happen, why evil things happen to innocent people, especially to children or those who really have nothing to do with it and uh, haven't really lived a life yet and, and, you know, enjoyed life as we would think they should, and their life gets cut short. Uh, and, and, and it is okay to question God. Job questioned God throughout the book of Job. Jesus questioned his father, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but it's never okay to blame God. It's never okay to fault God for evil because God is only good. He's not the author of evil. In Psalms chapter 91, we read this, and this is a great psalm for what we are facing right now as a nation with this coronavirus. As a matter of fact, I sent a uh, text message to Pastor Bob earlier this week. Shannon Grove, our state senator who was here a few weeks ago, took a picture of her Bible of Psalm 91 where she highlighted and underlined scriptures in Psalm 91 and she sent it out to a number of pastors that she knows. She's a woman of God and she is standing upon uh, the word of God at this time. Psalm 91 verse 1 says this, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague or pestilence come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. This is for the one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, the one who abides under the shadow of the Almighty. So when we face fears, when we face adversity, when we face sickness, when we face losses of jobs and of uh, our economic system and all that we know, if we run to the Lord, He will save us. He will protect us. He will shield us. He will be the one who sustains us 
through the times of adversity. And we're going to have victory over our enemies. He says, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You know, the lion, the roaring lion is the devil. Your enemy is as a roaring lion, Peter said, uh, uh, seeking someone to devour on the earth. And so we're going to have victory over the lion and the cobra. We know that the cobra, the snake, uh, is a picture of the devil again, the dragon, the serpent uh, of old, the, the snake in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we will have victory over the serpent and the lion as we run to the Lord, because our victory is in Christ. Jesus has already conquered the devil. He's already been victorious over death and over Satan and over sin and over hell. And if we're in Christ, we too have his victory. Joseph is another great example. We don't have time to turn there, but if you go back and you want to read later the story of Joseph, great story uh, of a man of God who was betrayed by his brothers, falsely accused by his boss's wife, thrown into prison on false charges, pretty much given up for dead in a dungeon in Egypt. Uh, And yet God was with Joseph the whole time. Joseph never wavered. Joseph never charged God for the evil that had befallen him. And in the end, God exalted Joseph, brought him to be the right hand of the Pharaoh, the ruler of the world, and to basically save the world from a terrible seven-year famine uh, that had come upon Egypt. Not only did he save Egypt, he saved Israel, and he saved his own family, including his brothers who had betrayed him. And at the end of uh, uh The story in in Genesis chapter 50, when Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers are now worried that that Joseph is going to get revenge because they had treated their brothers so terribly, their little brothers so terribly. Uh, Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Uh, He said, what you meant against me for evil, God meant it for good to provide salvation for all of you. And, uh, you know, I'm not your judge. In other words, Joseph said, God is your judge. Uh, And so we see over and over again. These stories in the Bible where when you suffer loss, when you suffer adversity, if you continue to seek the Lord, if you continue to put God first, if we continue to believe God's promises, in the end, we will prevail. Even if we lose our lives here in this world, that's not the end for us. Then we go on to glory. Then we go on to be with Jesus and, uh, you know, with all the angels and all the saints forever and ever in a place that is perfect, where there's no sin there's no darkness. It's, it's, it's the place of total peace and justice, righteousness and beauty. And so even death is not the end for the believer. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so part of the things that we deal with when we go through trials and we have to endure hardships is that we have to lay aside the weights that are besetting us, the sins, those things that are holding us back, the sins of our flesh, our attachments to the things of this world. We really should be those who travel very lightly through this world, not not holding anything with a tight fist, but with an open hand, because really everything in this world will be passing away. But the one who does the will of God will endure forever. Jesus is our example He's the one who, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, uh, and now is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. One more scripture here as we wrap up. Isaiah chapter 40, and this is a very wonderful promise of God to stand upon in times of fear and uncertainty and loss. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And so this is this is the uh, inheritance that we have as the people of God. These promises are ours as his people. We are the ones who gets power when we're weak from the Lord. We're the ones who gets might and has our strength uh, increased by the Lord. When we are weak, then we are strong, Paul the Apostle would say. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. In weakness, my power is made or my strength is made perfect. And Paul says, and I will boast in my infirmities. I will boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's not my strength anymore. It's not my striving anymore. It's not my pride anymore, thinking I could do it. It's just a total yielding and surrendering to the will of God for my life. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.